If you enjoy the LA Intergroup's Virtual Speakers Bureau podcasts, consider joining over 500 OA members for our annual OA birthday party, which will be held January 17th through 19th in Los Angeles at the LAX Four Points Hotel. There's free transportation from the airport, so ditch the cold weather and join us for a wonderful weekend of OA recovery. Visit oabirthday.com for more information. My recovery in the 12-step program. Okay, great. I can do that. My name is Helen. I'm a compulsive overeater. I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 1976. And what brought me in is I had just gained back 100 pounds. I had just lost in Weight Watchers. So I, I think I had, uh, you know, really taken the first step. I came from a very tumultuous household. My dad died when I was three. Um, my mom married somebody she wanted to be my dad, but uh, he really couldn't do that. He was a barber, and from what I hear, not a very good one. And uh, he had a little gambling problem. Of course, he always got paid in cash, and she saw about half of it. So there was a lot of drama, a lot of compulsive overeating. Um, we made a move from one little town in the San Gabriel Valley to the other, and on the way from one town to the other, my mom noticed a day-old bakery. Life was never the same after that. We could fill a whole shopping cart, and this was just hostess, for $5, literally just full of the brim. And on the way home, she'd say, now remember, this has to last our family a whole week. And it just never worked out, you know. And I, I was just so incredibly addicted. Now, when you see a kid put on 100 pounds in maybe two years, maybe you should think, maybe I'll stop going to the bakery. That never happened. So I always say to people, if your kids are fat, just don't bring their shit in. Not to say they couldn't get it. I had a student once who told me a story, and I've always repeated it because it was such a phenomenal story. He had a little niece who sold a fat who traded a family heirloom for something to eat at lunch. And I thought, oh, my God, (laughs) it was better that it was provided, you know. Um, But, yeah, I just, you know, I, uh, I just could not stop eating. And she'd say things like, I'm going to put those ding-dongs in the freezer. You know, like that was going to stop me. And, um, you know, there was just no stopping me. I mean, she promised me new wardrobes. I always wanted to go somewhere on an airplane, a little trip to San Francisco, nothing, nothing. So I found Weight Watchers, and my poor mom diligently made all those little recipes, like, you know, the cheesecake with the diet cream soda, the whole, you know, the whole bit where you'd boil this pineapple forever. And, um, you know, you can imagine her horror when I gained all that weight back. I mean, just absolutely horrified. And after I put 100 pounds on, she'd say, are you going to stop? What is it going to be? 300, 400? Where is it going to end? And I just think, God, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I really, it's may never end. And I guess that's the, you know, that's the element that kept me coming back. My binging was so fast and furious that um, I just wasn't sure it would ever end. So um, there was a person at my work, you know, I uh, graduated from college, got a job, uh, my mom divorced the gambler, and I was the sole support for my mother and a 13-year-old brother. 
and I worked a mile, 1.5 miles from home on the night shift, a very quiet place, had a quiet life, had not even been on a date, believe it or not. I mean, just a very restricted uh, life, and I just didn't know all the things that were available to me, you know. I um, work with young students now, and I just, God, I mean, the world, if you have the combination of being smart and poor, <laughs> you know, that's a great combination because you can get a lot of money and go to a good college. But see, I didn't know all that then. I um, I was lucky to go to community college. I never had my sights very high. I had a very limited uh, vision. And, you know, back then you could be a nurse or a teacher, and that's if you were lucky. And, you know, my mom was from the Depression era, and the prize was security. And, you know, that's one of the things we write about in our fourth step. How does it affect my security, self-esteem? And I would barter almost anything for the feeling of being secure. You know, that was just a big part of my mentality. I wanted to know I would be taken care of. And uh, now I know it's not necessarily a job or a man or any of those things that take care of you. It's God. You know, that's where my security lies. And that was one of my big character defects. So anyway, there was a lady at this job that she had tried overusing on this. She didn't think it was for her, but she really thought it would be for me. <laughs> and I, even when I heard the name, I said to myself, I bet you that's like Alcoholics Anonymous. And I knew that it was just right up my alley, that whatever problem I did have was right between my ears, you know. And I knew that it probably had some con concept of, I didn't know the word abstinence, but I knew there was probably some element of abstaining from something, you know. Um, and one of the things that helped me, I wish I had not, people that come into OA now seem to get a lot smarter a lot quicker than people did years ago. And I'm going to, I'm going to, and I can tell it by their pitches. I can just tell by the element of the, the flow of what they're saying that they're a lot more enlightened than I was. Um, even though I had a sponsor and, you know, was working the steps and everything, um, I was very focused on the perfectionism of the food plan, which is, you know, really the element of powerlessness in the first step. I was all about the first step. I gave a lot of lip service to the other steps, but I really did not work them. And this is what would happen. This is only my story. Um, but, you know, they gave me a diet, and I could stay on the diet for maybe two weeks, maybe two months, but then something would happen to the diet. And I would eat something innocuous in between a meal. Let's just say it was a graham cracker or something. And I'd say, oh, well, doesn't matter. I've lost my abstinence anyway. I might as well binge until I drop. And that happened for my first nine years in Overeaters Anonymous, the worst binging ever. And, you know, I lost a lot of weight because if you diet longer than you binge and you're, and you're very young and active, the weight will come off. But something different happens as you age. I always tell people, you know, young and fat, not such a bad combination. You're moving, you're hiking, you're on your Old and fat, nothing happens. I'm telling you, this is a bad combination. It's really bad. I mean, your mobility is restricted. I mean, if you don't believe me, go to Costco and look who's pushing around in those little things. That's us. us. That is us. That is who we are. Immobile, 60, 70-year-old people in some cart. 
That's where we're all headed. And um, because you wouldn't be here unless you had a serious food problem. And that's where a serious food problem takes you at the end. And nobody wants to think about that. I certainly didn't when I was young. But now that I'm old, you know, it is something that's just paramount. You know, I just, so I won't walk like the tin man. I have to get up every morning early and do ten minutes of yoga just so I won't walk like this for the first hour, you know. Um, you know, and that, the years of eating that heavy sugar, you know, takes a toll on you. Um, and some people, you know, pay the ultimate price. Uh, not everybody is saved by this program. And I think um, uh, a girl I sponsored in Montana told me this, that Overeaters Anonymous isn't for those who need it. It's not even for those who want it. It's only for those who work it. <laughs> And I think that's really true. And um, I am willing to do the work as though I believe I'm bodily and mentally different from my fellows. See, I really believe that I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And that's why I'm willing to go to three meetings a week, do service at one, do one workshop a year, one retreat a year, and one convention a year. So I've got a yearly plan. I've got a daily plan. I've got a weekly plan. And I really live as though my life depended on this program because I really think it does. And I think when you look around the room and you see people that have been here for over 10 years, they wouldn't put in all this work unless they thought one thing, this disease can take me down. And the people that you see here after that period of time, they truly believe that this disease will take them down. That's why they keep showing up. And I am uh, one of those people. And... Um, not only take me down physically, um, you know, but emotionally. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says resentment is our number one offender. And I um, truly believe that my first spiritual awakening happened in a patient's room in a hospital at probably 2 in the morning. Just to show you how my mind worked, um, I called my sponsor and I said, Can you believe they've let all the housekeepers go? And they want the registered nurses to empty the trash cans. Well, I didn't go to school to empty trash cans, and I'm not going to empty the trash And she listens to this whole tirade, and she said, Helen, wouldn't it just be easier to empty the trash cans? <laughs> and that is just, and when I emptied that trash can, I thought, I'm doing something against my will and not complaining. That was my first spiritual awakening. <laughs> and that is because I followed the direction of another human being. I emptied that trash can without complaint. And that was so typically not me. And that's what you have to do to get well. Follow the suggestion of a person who may be sicker than you are <laughs> and trust that you're doing the right thing, you know. And um, it's very hard for me to keep my mouth shut. I am the perpetual malcontent you know there was this old man and when I say old I mean you know I was very young when I came in so um, he was probably the age that I am now and his name was Webster Terrell probably remembers him and he stand up here and pontificate and he had a million different theories and a lot of little riddles and one of the things that he he said I didn't understand until I was many years older he said, how do you know the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic? And everybody's at, here at Overeaters Anonymous, and they're just looking like, what does that have to do with food? And he'd say, well, I'll tell you what. The, um, the, uh, 
the psychotic thinks two plus two is three. The neurotic knows two plus two is four, but he can't stand it. <laughs> and now I get that. <laughs> You know, I knew the way life was flying at me, but it wasn't fair. It shouldn't happen. And furthermore, if I'm abstaining, all the lights should be turning green. I should get the guy I want. The, the world should respect my sacrifice of eating three meals a day with nothing in there. You know, I'm, things should just go a little better, you know. And life just keeps coming at you in the most unfair way without your permission and um, you know that, that was very difficult I remember um, for those of you who are new um, one of the tools in this program is writing second step we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and for me that means with food and today that means no dieting and no binging and this is just my opinion for the extent that you diet that is the extent that you will binge. For every diet, there's an equal and opposite binge. It's just a matter of when it's coming. It's coming, for sure. You're going to pull it back too tight. It's like a spring, and when it lets go, you better get out of the way. You know, because we're moving through, you know, to get our um, food. And three has made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood him. Um, four... Um, is this moral, you know, inventory that we do. And um, after you do the moral inventory, I, let me tell you, I created most of my wreckage in the past in this program because what is a 20-year-old kid who hasn't even been out on a date, what kind of wreckage is there? You know, I hadn't slept with anybody's husband or embezzled any money, you know. I mean, the worst thing that I had done is probably mouthed off to a lot of people, <laughs> now that I think of it, and uh, stolen uh, candy bars from the local pharmacist. That's pretty much it, you know. Um, but, um, you know, I would read these inventories, and I wrote a lot on my job and my mother. That was a lot of my, you know, resentments, you know. Um, and I remember calling up one of my sponsors, I've had many, and just crying, and I said, is this too much to ask? Do you think this is too much to ask of a mother? And she said to me, something I'll never forget. No, Helen, that's not too much to ask of a mother. That's something every mother should do. But it's too much to ask of your mother. And then snap, back to reality. You know, that is the two plus two is four, and I can't stand it. This is my mother. What kind of a God would take away my dad, who, from what I hear, was sane, and leave me with one parent, the crazy one? How fair does that seem? And very, very poor, you know. Um, it just didn't seem fair in a lot of respects. And um, I tried to, uh, and the big book talks about this, we thought we could wrestle, and it uses the world, wrestle satisfaction if we only managed our life uh, right, and that's what I was always doing. Today, this is what I'll say about God's will. There is a difference between hard work and struggle. When I'm in God's will in the flow, I am willing to work hard. That's what it takes to, you know, wake up at seven and be here and do a lot of the other things I do. Go to work, 
What I'm not willing to do today is struggle. Because when I'm struggling against the tide, I'm not in God's will. And so there's nothing today that I'll struggle with. There's no job important enough. There's no man important enough. You know, and I, uh, you know, I didn't have my first child till I was 40. And um, even in parenting, there's so much I believe that is just stamped into the gene pool that I'm not going to wrestle any of those things out of her. She is who she is. And some people said, well, maybe that's just a, a lazy parenting approach. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, she'd, ha- she'd have some problem at school. I said, do you need me to get involved, Kelly? No. Okay, I'm not getting involved then. You know, I just, and there's natural consequences to all the actions we have, and I just let her have those natural consequences, no matter what they are. Um, you know what? I, I want to say this about genetics. <laughs> I think, you know, when my mom told me I was a difficult child, now I believe her. Um, And I'll tell you why. She, my daughter is so different than I uh, am. When she was a freshman in high school, she got accepted onto the dance team at her school. And they just ruthlessly tormented her. They told her that she was fat. She was ugly. She was the worst dancer on the team. They had little parties and they didn't invite her. And then one night this all culminated in this big thing where they all got together except her at some girl's house and they went out and they toilet papered our house, right? And and then they posted on Facebook, girls night out. And my daughter was the only one not invited. And I'm ready to go slash their tires because this is who I am, right? How dare they hurt my child like this? And I revved up and I said, try to stay out of it. Kelly, what are you going to do about this? And she goes, well, I guess I'm not going to be on the dance team next year. Never heard another thing about it. Let me tell you, if that was my story, I'd be talking about it 40 years later. I think I have an oversized amygdala that stores a lot of drama. Yeah. But I just think we are who we are. We just come out different. And this is just her general temperament. I can't figure this out because this is not me. I'm always holding back. I want to say a lot of things I never say. I want to get even in a lot of... I want to even the score. And, um, you know, most of the time I don't because I know that it's not good for my recovery. It's not good for my abstinence. But today my, um, you know, my food plan is um, three meet, uh, three meetings a day, huh? <laughs> three meals a day. I don't eat any fast food. And, and Overeaters Anonymous, it's almost sacrilegious to say you're not having pollo loco. But, um, um, isn't it? But, uh, you know, uh, no fast foods, no uh, processed foods. I try to um, cook food, you know, like real food, like your grandmother would cook in a pan or saute it or, you know. I actually buy food. I put it in the refrigerator. And our, our house is so small, we're like the Europeans. Our refrigerator is this big. <laughs> I practically have to go out every day, you know, to get food. Uh, Somebody said something at Thanksgiving like, when are you going to upgrade this refrigerator? And I said, what do you mean? It's only six months old. (laughs) This is, you know, this is how we live. We do a lot of shopping and a lot of cooking. 
And that's, you know, people say, well, I don't have time to cook. And, you know, that's why they're eating in fast food places a lot. But um, it's just something I have to do to me if I don't have the processed food. It helps me not to have the cravings. There's something about that food that makes me want more of it. So there's, um, you know, four years ago, I've been abstaining for 14 years. And um, I had another, I, I binged and dieted for nine years. And then somebody said, well, why don't you just tell the truth about what you eat? If you have something that you shouldn't have on your food plan, why don't you just say your abstinence is no binging? And then you're going to call that a bad food choice. And what I used to call it before was a break in my abstinence. And if you're going to break it anyway, you might as well have this, 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 and this. Now that's a luxury I can't afford. You know, sometimes people say, well, I ate such and such. And I go, where did you get it? They go at the grocery store. And I go, really? Because I can't imagine anymore because I've conditioned myself so much to when I walk in the grocery store, taking the second step. And I don't buy food anywhere that's not a grocery store. Like at the gas station, bad place. Drive through dairy, not a good place. So I think if you just buy food at grocery stores, you have a much better chance of abstaining from compulsive overeating. Rather than drive throughs dairies, 7-Elevens, gas stations, they even sell it at Home Depot. None of those are places we should be frequenting. <laughs> That's just my opinion. I know a lot of people really like the convenience or they'll say, I don't cook. People will tell me that. Five minutes. Done. Learn to cook. <laughs> Okay. After the seventh tradition is read, this is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. <clears throat> Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. So after you ask a question, I will repeat it and then hopefully answer it, and then I'll stop at about 9.50. So does anybody have a question? Yes. Hi. Thank you. It's Thank you. to me like you still have frequent or at least you know, semi-frequent resentment. And uh, I'd like to know what you do about working on those resentments if you don't act out on them. You may yes. not act out on them. Do you do a fourth step? Or you might not need a tenth step. So what do you do? I do exactly like the fourth step inventory in the big book. It says, why am I angry at this person or sometimes this situation. A lot of these today revolve around my job, generally speaking. I think I have a very peaceful family life. And, you know, usually don't... I only have a, um, a husband and a daughter. So I'm just trying to think of the last resentment. Probably involved my work. And I ask myself why, how this affects my security, self-esteem, personal relationships, pocketbook, and ambition. And I'm going to tell you what I've learned from writing this. I work for somebody else and I always have. The players have changed, but I've never owned my own business. 
So for that reason, I have the security of a paycheck. But I want to run your company and tell you how to do it, yet at the same time, want the security of a paycheck. Life doesn't work that way. You know, and so what I discover in writing through that is a character defect, that I want it both ways. I want to be taken care of, and this is, you know, a running theme that's not completely cured. But I can tell you it's cured in my marriage. Because I had a husband, a husband, a sponsor tell me once, you can't be taken care of and be a ball buster at the same time. You get to make a choice. You know, one of those choices. If you want a man to take care of you, I mean, not financially, but, you know, to fix something if it breaks, comfort you, take care of you, you can't be so aggressive. And I believe that I have that now. I have a husband that just takes care of everything. He's just an adult man. So he's self-supporting through his own, own contributions. He takes care of his own problems. He takes care of a lot of our family problems. If we get a bill from Verizon we don't like, he's on the phone fixing it. There's a lot of things he takes care of, right? But I had to give up the bossiness, the meanness, the attitude, all that. And I learned that through writing. That's how I learned that. And through calling a sponsor. Because I don't... I can't use the same head that got me sick to fix my problems. So I write the whole four-step inventory and read it to somebody. And not always the same buddy, same somebody. You know, when I was younger, you'd think that, you know, because I waited until I was 40 to have a kid, that I would be totally enthralled and in love with motherhood. I was not. It was very difficult for me. And I learned through that experience, there are some things I'm not good at. (laughs) And that little baby period with all the crying, oh my God. Not good at it. Through no fault of my own. I think some people, even my husband, more naturally loving and patient. And it's not something that comes natural to me. I can get it by taking the next indicated step, role playing and pretending But I can't help what doesn't come natural. And so today I I try not to make a lot of apologies for not being one of these mothers that is, uh, you know, posting things on Pinterest and, you know, sending love notes in the lunchbox and all that. It's just so not me. Yes, anybody else? Yes. Concept of a higher power. Yes. My concept of a higher power has evolved. Um, You know, I really thought when I was younger that um, having God was similar to being, you know, like having a Santa Claus. You gave him a wish list and he came back with all your wishes granted. And now I know even the seemingly bad things, nothing happens in God's world by accident. You know, I had a job once, this was probably 20 years ago, when I had a very difficult boss. I mean, painfully difficult. And you know when I wrote on that and I was asking, why is this happening to me? There was a period of time that I was a boss and I acted very similar. I had to call those people up that I had worked with years ago and make my amends for being rude, unbending, unflexible, and sometimes you know, just downright mean, but I didn't see it until it had happened to me. So everything that comes my way now, I know that it's a gift from God. It's not something to fight or struggle against. 
And before I would either try to change something, you know, that's that struggle, or flee the other way. Now I can be peaceful in the midst of things that are not very comfortable for me and do nothing. And that's how I know that God is truly working in my life, that I can have an element of peace when things are rather chaotic and, you know, not working well. And, I, you know, as far as character defects, um, I know what they are. I give them all names, you know. I think that really helps me. And I ask God to remove them, but I can tell you a lot of my defects of character have not been removed. I still suffer from a lot of anxiety. I don't want to say resentment. I don't think I'm really resentful at anybody. But um, I will say this. I suffer from anxiety. Not depression. I never feel depressed. But sometimes I feel anxious. And I feel like I should be doing something. And I'm not doing anything. I don't know if that makes sense. So sometimes I want to do things and I can't. And the sitting still, just the quietness creates anxiety in me sometimes. Yes? Well, because I was 40, no, I didn't really think about that. And I'll tell you, that was really taken care of. I only gained 30 pounds with that pregnancy. And um, and I lost it, you know, within the first year. So, it, you know, it just couldn't have been better for me. The difficult part for me was, I would say, the first 18 months were very, very difficult. People said things like, oh, I must, bet you must be broken hearted going back to work and leaving her. And I think, oh, I tell them, oh, yes, I'm broken hearted. But I wasn't. I was just like, free at last. <laughs> free at last. I mean, that's truly how I felt. I know that just sounds awful. But I played the part. You know, I did all the things that I saw other people do. That looked appropriate. But I didn't at the core feel those things until my daughter was about 18 months. But, you know, thank God I had a very supportive and loving husband. And, you know, I feel bad about that. But you can't feel what you don't feel, you know, if that makes sense. But, And I didn't, you know, get married to her dad until I was 35. So, you know, and we tried from the beginning. It just never happened. So, you know, it happened in God's time, and um, she's 18 now, and she's just very beautiful, very centered, you know, goes to college. She has a little part-time job at Baskin Robbins. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you know, a big a, a big thing for me is she just never looked like she was suffering much, you know, to me. She just seems to be one of these kids that is just kind of uh, gliding through life. But the thing that I was concerned about is grades. You can't make anybody get good grades. And one of the things that bothers me as an educator is what I call this cut-and-paste mentality. You know, when somebody does a, a homework assignment, 
They grab it, cut it, taste it, I did it, and they actually think that's their work, you know? And I wanted this real learning to take place, and I planned study groups and bought things over the email, and I was just tons and tons of stuff. This had to do with this AP psychology exam. I went down and talked to the teacher, and in the end, she got a two on that exam, right? And what I learned, and I wrote on that, I was really angry. It's just like with like she thwarted all my efforts to help her. And I thought, I can't want something more than you want it, whether it's a good grade on an AP psychology exam or entrance to a good college. And that's what I looked at, that I want those things. You know, like my mom wanted a slim body. So she was kind of projecting that onto me, you know. And... This is another thing I think that a lot of people don't agree. I think we all get the lives we want. And not, yeah, I, I really believe that. And I think that, uh, you know, she may not be as status-seeking or whatever. And the only, the only thing is I don't enable her financially. And I think that's where parents do have some power. You have the power over how much money you give people, Right? That power I do, I can't control anything else. Even when she was young, you know, she talked about, you know, well, what if drugs, you know, drugs come with their own natural consequence. I'm not going to tell you not to use them or to come home at a certain time or anything. You know, if you need birth control, I told her that at 12. If you need birth control, just ask me. Because you can't stop a kid from having sex. They're just going to have it. Whenever that sex drive kicks in, there's nothing that's going to get in the way of that. So what I wanted her to do is be safe and happy and healthy. And I have, let me tell you, I've put very little restrictions on her. And she has her own car. She has her own job. And, you know, she seems to be doing very well. But I know that in life, she doesn't want the same things that I want. It's very interesting. And she's very religious, too, which is kind of strange because we, you know, really don't go to church very much and it's just so interesting watching her. It's like a little science experiment. <laughs> it just is really interesting because kids turn out in ways that you don't prepare for, you don't indoctrinate them. They just are their own little people and it, to me it's just fascinating. I can hardly wait to see who she becomes but I just absolutely love who she is now. And she's just very fun, very loving, very uh, giving. Like I said, all the things that I wasn't. And I think that that's a gift from God, you know, and that I get to be a real mother to her. Um, and her friends think I'm the cool mom. So, yes. Hi. Thank you so much for your share. How did you stop when you were in program thinking? I stopped dieting. And I got a sponsor who I could tell the truth to. So what I'd do in the past is I'd call in a naked chicken breast and a cup of broccoli for lunch, and then I'd go to Taco Bell. You know, when lunch came, I had no interest in that chicken breast. None. But I would lie about it, you know, because I wanted to please the sponsor. So I would say, you know, get a sponsor you're comfortable with, allow for some variances in the way that you really eat. You know, this was... You know, over 20 years ago, I haven't been to Taco Bell in quite a long time. But back then, it was my deal, you know. But um, 
that's what I would say, just stop restricting so much. I was very restrictive, very perfectionistic. And when I gave that perfectionism up, and go to a lot of meetings too. If you, there were times that I went to five meetings a week. You know, I've heard people say, uh, you know, and Overeaters Anonymous, um, well, I can't go over there. It's, you know, it's on the other side of town, whatever. I don't go past a certain thing or I don't drive at night. I have just a lot of things, you know. If you really think you're dying, you'll go to seven meetings a week. There weren't all these meetings 30 years ago. So I had to get in a car and drive from Covina all the way to Glendale or to Beverly Hills. And I would get in my car and do that because it meant that much to me. So I can't, and you can't be eating while you're at a meeting. They don't allow it. So, you know, um, just going to meetings is very, very helpful. Yeah. Oh, the most horrible thing I ever do is say horrible things. Because most people, that I've, I've heard this, walk away from think, a, a situation go, oh, I wish I had said this. They think of all the cool things to think of later. Not me. I think of all the bad things to say, and I don't even hear them until they're coming out of my mouth. So my mouth is a few steps ahead of my brain, if you can even believe that. Right? So that means I have to go back and apologize. And a big person, you know, that I apologized to was my mom for making hurtful statements to her. You know, um, I divorced Kelly's dad uh, 12, 13 years ago and when she was five. And uh, we sat in that empty house after it was sold. And I sat them down in this empty house apologizing to them both that I didn't have the skills and the tools to make the marriage work. I apologized to a five-year-old because I knew it was going to really impact her and committed to her to only say nice things about her dad, be supportive of him, and have a non-adversarial divorce. We did not even use an attorney, if you can believe that. And we had property and a kid. We used a negotiator. And that's Overeaters Anonymous. That is my living amends. A lot of times, I don't accept people for who they are. Many of you have already heard the tuxedo story, but have you heard that story from me? When <laughs> when I um, was marrying Kelly's dad, I wanted my brother to walk me down the aisle. And uh, he said he would walk me down the aisle if um, I paid for the tuxedo. <laughs> and I thought, what a weirdo. He probably spends more than that on pot. My sponsor, my sponsor at the time says to me, Helen, if I were you, I'd rent him the tuxedo. It's you that wants it. And I thought, obviously, she doesn't know anything. I would be enabling him. So I didn't talk to him for two years. He calls me up and invites me to his wedding. And I noticed at his wedding, he's not wearing a tuxedo. It took that long for it to occur to me that my character defect is I expect you to do for me what you're unwilling to do even for yourself. That is how sick I am. 
And I can't do that. And I, uh, that day taught me so much when I'm looking at him on his wedding day, not in a tuxedo. But I had to, if I wanted a relationship with the only person left in my family, my brother, I would have to accept him who he was, where he was, if he smoked pot, if he didn't, no matter what. And we are close. We have a wonderful relationship. So sometimes my amends is just accepting you with all your warts and flaws. Even though I don't like it, I didn't give permission for it. That is my acceptance of loving you for exactly who you are and where you are. And that's the only reason I have a relationship with him today and I'm able to see my nephews. Because I let all that go. So, that's it.